0: Salutations to everybody out there in podcast land. This is the Judo Chop Suey Podcast, and I'm your host, Judo Dave Roman. What's going on, everybody? I just flew back from Kansas City, and boy, are my arms tired. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, I get you. I get you. No, terrible joke, but it is true. I just did come back from Kansas City, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that because I attended JudoCon. And let me tell you, it was a fantastic event. I'm going to cover the things that I experienced and learned at JudoCon. I won't go into great detail because I don't want to you know, make this podcast all about JudoCon. But it was a fantastic event. I can't wait to talk about that. I also want to cover some of the results of the Abu Dhabi Grand Slam. That was a, an event that took place on the weekend of October 27th through the 29th. And I am also going to discuss a little bit of drama. This is a little bit old news now, but I wanted to bring it up because I think it's important for people in the United States to be aware of. Hate to say it, the the, the ugly side of judo politics in the United States. And I'm going to talk and broach about. Uh, I'm going to talk about this subject very delicately because I don't. I'm not gonna talk about this with with the intention to insult or belittle or to make fun of or anything like that. I just I guess I just want to talk about this story and make you, the listeners, aware that sometimes we all need to work harder and better at trying to solve some of the problems with judo in the United States as a big community instead of maybe doing or saying things that are divisive. And I'll get to a lot of that later. And again, I'm going to really broach the subject with kid gloves because I don't know everything, but I think it's an important subject to talk about. And I'm also going to have some listener reaction. You know how much I love that. So to kick things off on this episode, I want to talk about judo con. Now, as some of you, the regular listeners, know, this is an event that I've been talking about uh, on and off for the past several months. I planned on going to JudoCon way back in, I believe it was June or, or, or maybe in, in, in as early as late May. As soon as it was announced, I bought my tickets. I was excited to go, and the event delivered. Now, for those of you who may not have heard, um, may not have been a listener to this podcast then, JudoCon was a, a get-together of, of judo enthusiasts, and it was sponsored by AAU Judo and the Judo Black Belt Association. And it, it is an event that covered many different subjects. It was There was some training involved for sure. There was a lot of coaches' education, and there was uh, some very interesting things to learn about dojo management. I can't wait to talk about some of that. It was an event that took place on November 2nd and 3rd, and as I am recording this, it is November 5th. I would have started recording this episode yesterday, but of course Sunday is Buccaneers Sunday, and I never miss a Bucks game for as terrible as they are. Be that as it may. So I want to talk about my experiences at JudoCon, which started uh, Thursday, early Thursday. I flew into Kansas City. I'll spare you the joke again. So I flew into Kansas City early Thursday, and I have never been to Missouri before in my life. It's I've never really been to that part of the country. It was really an interesting experience because Kansas City was a heck of a lot larger than I anticipated, uh, maybe 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 not as large as new york city in terms of the skyline and downtown but in terms of area it was quite large I, I was i was very surprised it was a very nice city i'm not sure what i expected it's certainly a larger city than tampa and and i think a little bit nicer even though tampa's got some some gorgeous places especially right around the bay but but as soon as i got to kansas city I had to have some of that famous Kansas City barbecue, so I went on TripAdvisor, found a local restaurant that was recommended by um, regular people that visit that site, and I was not disappointed. The barbecue was just was fantastic, and I had a, a local beer that was really good as well, something called the Farmhouse. So I got to the hotel. I was chilling out, watching some TV, uh, getting myself ready to go to the casino, which there's, there's several casinos in Kansas City. And lo and behold, I see a message on my Instagram, not Instagram, on my Facebook uh, that there was a training session going on at Welcome Mat Training Center in Shawnee, Kansas, which is the same place that JudoCon was being held. So I decided to go to the workout session and it was finally at this point as I'm driving to find the location of the dojo where my GPS tells me that I'm now entering Kansas. And it was the first time that it dawned on me that the dojo was not in Missouri. It was in Kansas. So I just realized at that point that I could scratch off two states on my states I have never been to list. So that's Missouri and Kansas. I had never been to either states before. So I always like visiting new places. So I was very happy to see, hey, I'm in Kansas. How about that? Never been. So I get to the club, and I meet Derek Darling. Now, for those of you who follow Welcome Mat uh, videos on YouTube, they're they're very popular. Um, Derek is usually the person doing a lot of the demonstrating, so it was kind of neat to finally meet somebody that I've been watching, um, and I don't mean that in a very weird stalker way, but I've been watching for a, probably like five years, so very cool to meet him. He's a super cool dude, and... Um, and the, the the club itself was very cool a very nice uh, large mat space and we ended up having a workout there it was p- not part of the uh not part of the judocon, but um sensei James Wall of Wall-to-Wall Martial Arts was leading the class and we did a lot of uh we did really some brazilian jiu-jitsu related nawaza and it was it was pretty neat i learned something and i'm glad i went unfortunately i ended up pulling a groin muscle that night and that really sucked it really put a damper on things for the rest of my weekend but my training partner that night a fellow from his name happens, name happens to be Dave as well he's from uh works for the army and he was stationed in Korea he just got back uh, to the states and boy his judo was fantastic and you could tell that he spent a lot of time in Korean clubs he's just he just had that kind of Korean style a very upright posture. I mean, granted, I play upright as well, but he was a lot better. He was a lot better at judo than I was, and uh, it was is it was a real pleasure to to do some Rondori with him. But unfortunately, it was during that Rondori that I uh, somehow pulled a groin muscle, which is something that I haven't done in years. So that put a damper on the weekend. But after the workout, we I just went back and. Next morning, I went back and finally met Steve Scott, which is somebody that I that I've had on this podcast, spoken to many times, but never met in person. And um, it was definitely a thrill for me to meet him. And that same morning, I met Dr. Anne Maria Demars for the very first time. That was awesome. So as these things go, you know, I meet a few people that I recognize from Facebook and 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 listeners and such, and then. As the, You know how these things go when, when a bunch of people starts getting in there. You, you start introducing yourself. I am Dave, this and that. And you maybe remember the first two or three names. And then it's, it just becomes a blur right after that. So I think I did a pretty good job remembering most people's names. But sorry if I forgot some of you guys out there. There's nothing Nothing personal if you're listening. So the conference starts off with everybody doing a – with a technical session, ho, session hosted by Dr. M. Maria DeMars and Steve Scott uh, related to Juji and some of the entries on how to get into Juji on your feet. And I thought it was a good way to, to warm up and, and, and get accustomed to how the conference was going to go. But what was interesting is that shortly after that, probably about a half hour in within to, to the technical session – I was asked to be an uke for a fellow who was testing for his yawn down. Well, we're on now. We're on. And for a moment, I hesitated because I did have that groin injury. But I said to myself, you know what? This is this is a unique opportunity in of itself within the judo conference. And I've never been a part of somebody's uh, belt test. Or I should say, I don't like belt tests, more a uh, rank test. So I decided to give it a go. I knew it would hurt a little bit. I, I, you know, the the pain wasn't too unbearable, but I wanted to make sure that I pushed through it and and be the best UK that I could be given the circumstances. And it went really well. The fellow who tested his name is Lester Martell, and he's the owner of High Impact Martial Arts in West New York, New Jersey. Uh, That's quite a name. I mean, I didn't know there was a West New York in New Jersey. It's kind of interesting anyway. And the rank testing continued for another fellow who came in the afternoon. His name is Tyrus Cox, and he's the owner of Centex Combative Arts and Fitness out of uh, Pflugersville, Texas, someplace close to Austin, Texas. So that's the major city on the map. (laughs) Sorry if I butchered the name there. I was also an uke for Tyrus, who was being tested for his showdown. Well, we're moving. So that was also for, for these two gentlemen, the, it was uh, very important ranks. We all know Shodan is, is a big deal to many, but certainly Yondan is a huge deal. And for me to be a part of that, uh, Lester had to demonstrate the Goshin Jutsu Kata, which is something that I've never seen in person ever in my life. Heck, now that I think of it, I don't think I've seen most Kata in, done in person in my life. So <laughs> there's that. Right, except for Naginokata, Everything else I've only seen on video. So it was really interesting to see. I've just never seen it done in person. And it was part of his uh, rank test for Yondon, which is great. You know, now that I think of it, I don't know how the other Judo organizations promote people to ranks Yondon and up, but I always was under the impression that uh, ranks Yondon and up were typically voted on by You know, let's say, for example, USA Judo. I don't know if people who are testing for or or being promoted to Yondon has to actually demonstrate any judo. But with the Judo Black Belt Association, you are tested and you have to know your stuff. And Lester certainly knew his stuff. He was he was excellent in his demonstrations. Really, both of them were excellent. That's not to take away from you, Tyrus, if you're listening, which I'm sure you're not. But that's okay. (laughs) All right, I'm rambling on. Where was I? Oh, yeah, the rest of JudoCon. So actually, a lot of my afternoon after our lunch break was taken up uh, as assisting those two gentlemen with their rank promotions uh, or with their rank tests, excuse me, which they did pass and they got promoted to their respective ranks. So congratulations to you both. So continuing with day one, there was an excellent session on mat games for children in teaching children's judo with uh, hosted by by James Wall and his family. And it was really interesting because the games that that he was demonstrating that he has for kids. Are games that I have never really seen before. There were some warm-ups. Some of the warm-up exercises were uh, I've seen in some clubs. But not done with the type of fun and enthusiasm that, that James had demonstrated. And there were some other types of games that I have never seen before. There was this really neat uh, tic-tac-toe game using belts and dropping off handkerchiefs within the the belt area which is made up like a tic-tac-toe board and the idea of the game was to get kids to react and think quickly and there there were other types of games that I, I just thought was really neat and it's it was one of the more interesting sessions for for day one especially when it comes to the topic of coaching and coaching kids. I, I just thought it was it was really neat. I, if there were other sessions again, I I may have missed them because I was involved in the the rank testing. But but after that, later on in the day, there was another technical session uh, about uchimata, and that was that was a really interesting session. It was a version of uchimata that I have never been shown before or practiced before. It was it was awkward for me to do. Uh, simply because you know, so when you learn new things, it's always awkward, and then when you're caught on video, you look like a dunce trying them. <laughs> but, but it was it was a good session nonetheless, and it's it's a it's an approach to uchimata that I will carry with me, uh, moving forward. At least it'll always be an option for me there. It's something that I can always try, especially and I you know, now that I do a lot of Nogi, I'm always my mind is always spinning thinking about okay now how am i going to make this work nogi so it's very very interesting and unfortunately for me there was a there was a session on leg locks in the evening i couldn't do it i my body was just not only with with the groin injury but my goodness i don't know what it was i just had a bad day physically my back was extremely tight and my back spasms were acting up it was it was not a good day for me and i I talked about it in my last episode. I did not have an opportunity to take as much CBD throughout the day as I would have liked. And I'm probably, you know, I'm going to talk a little, I'm going to give an update on CBD uh, towards the end of this podcast because uh, I find, there's some new findings for me personally. But anyway, I needed ibuprofen or CBD or something and I just didn't have any. And I, I could not stick around for that last session. So, I ended up going back to the hotel. I, I soaked in a in a hot tub for about uh, about a half hour or so, and then made my way out to one of the local casinos. I played at uh, Harrah's, which is kind of interesting. Driving into Harrah's, it was it reminded me of driving into Disney World, except instead of Mickey Mouse, it's all these old people. You know, these billboards of uh, people gambling and celebrating their winnings, which is something that I knew I would not be doing that night. But I ended up playing a little bit of slots. What I really wanted to do, I wanted to play some... I'm a very good Texas Hold'em player, and I they did not have a cash table for Hold'em. I, I wanted to get out there and you know maybe sit at a table for a couple of hours and steal people's money, but it just wasn't meant to be. I saw a lot of craps tables and and uh, I think some roulette and, and blackjack, which th- those are just games that I don't feel comfortable playing. So I had that I had 10 bucks in my pocket I spent it on on a slot machine and and I I lost it all but, you know big losses right and then I I uh, went to the local bar and just had a beer there and and that was it that was my night I watched a little bit of college football and headed back to the hotel but day two was another excellent day and that was really interesting because the first session which was really long, <laughs> Was a discussion about successful dojo management, and that was done by by James and Patty Wall, along with Lester Martell, who I spoke about earlier. And I remember James. I mean, James said a lot of things during that presentation, but he said something that I thought was was poignant in in that I really thought it was the most important session of the entire conference because there is this idea, and it's an idea that I used to believe that one cannot make money teaching Judo. And I've been since proven wrong about that, you know, a long time ago, especially when I had a conversation with Serge Buyasu on this podcast uh, well over a year ago, back uh, May of 2017. But James's presentation was a lot about how he runs his school. He's got over 200 students at his club, if you can believe that. And he talked a lot about, how he markets to mom and how he advertises and how he presents his business and in terms of location and why he stays away from industrial areas. And I thought that was really interesting because there's even the judo clubs that I've been a part of over the years, many of them were in industrial locations and that's not, for him anyway, good for business. And something else that I thought was really interesting that many of us uh, really don't like is locking students into contracts and having belt promotion fees. And I know a whole lot of you are probably shuddering at that thought. But when it comes to running a business, it I, I understand it. I get it. it. It's not it's not ideal for somebody like me. But if you're making a living and you are depending on that income to put food on the table, you got to make sure that money's going to be there and you can't have people that are wishy-washy on pay- wishy-washy on paying on time or people coming and going. You want people in there that's going to make a commitment and I totally get that. It it's it's really interesting to me that things that I used to just really despise is is what makes a a, a club successful. If you and you got to run it as a business. And and what I thought was interesting it the way that James does this, and the say, and and Lester also talked about this as well, because he, like as I said earlier, he he owns high impact martial arts. How they run their businesses doesn't mean that you have to run your club that way. If you just want a recreational club that you just have a couple of mats and you you get together and you're not running it as a business, you're not making a living off of it. That that's okay, too. It, it, that doesn't mean that the way that what they are doing is the only way to do things. It's just it's the way that has worked well for them. And the thing that really struck me about this, about these two gentlemen, and by extension, Serge Bouillassou himself, um, these three clubs are not run by people who were World or Olympic uh, gold medalists. And I'll never forget Serge Buijsu saying something last year along the lines of, you know, hey guys, it's it's the same judo that I'm teaching and I'm making a living off of this that the recreational guy down the road, you know, teaching twice a week, you know, th- Tuesdays and Thursdays is teaching. It's the same judo. It's just the differences the the business side of things, and in the marketing. And the investment in the location—that's the big difference. But in terms of what's being sold, it's still the it's still the same judo uh, that's being taught by everybody else, really. So I thought James's presentation was very interesting. Uh, what was also discussed specifically by Lester Martell was was utilizing social media for engagement and getting people and foot traffic into the in in, in through to your school and such. So I just thought the way that they approach the business aspect of this was really interesting. Something that Lester said is that he arranges his promotions for his students at the end of October, at the end of February, and at the end of June, because he needs to get the students and the money into his club before the big spending months happen. So obviously the end of October you're ramping up into Thanksgiving and Christmas, at the end of February, you're ramping up into spring break, and at the end of June, you're ramping up into summer vacation. So I thought that was really fascinating, and and some of this information was just just, um, things I would have never thought of if I was running a club on my own. So one of these days, I'm going to get James and or Lester on the podcast to talk about how they to talk about this stuff in in much more detail because I'm just kind of skimming through this even though i've taken some time talking about this segment that um was part of judocon but I would like to get them onto the podcast to talk about some of this stuff because really if they can do it so many other people can do it too I now for me i am not willing to give up my career just yet to do this but maybe 7 years down the road, 6 7 years down the road, I I may take um I may try this out because I tell you what, I am I've made it a promise to myself that I'm going to be out of IT by the time I'm 50 and I'm going to be 44 pretty soon, which that pains me just saying that out loud. Anyway, in the afternoon session we had a special treat. Um John Saylor, who was the three-time US National Champion And a two-time Pan Am medalist came down for JudoCon on Saturday, and I believe he brought down some of his students. I'm not sure if they came down with him. If not, I, I didn't know really who they were, but... John taught a clinic on grip fighting and, and getting it throw some certain grips. There was a, a lot of it I had already seen before because, you know, I've talked about my coach in the past and, and, and his credentials and who he learned from. But there were some interesting things that I had not really seen before that I've never been taught before and, and things related to grip fighting that I will probably use moving forward. I just thought it was uh, an interesting approach to things. And he also taught some turnovers uh, in in Nawaza that I don't really think I've seen, and and I've seen variations of them, but but not quite the way that he demonstrated. So it was an excellent afternoon session. I think the session with him, probably with with a half hour break in between, lasted about uh, gosh, like maybe three or four hours. It was it was an it was an excellent way to close out the afternoon. And after the conference, we all went out for. Dinner and drinks, which was really nice. We went to another barbecue place. And it was there where the senior leadership of the JBBA formally promoted Steve Scott and John Saylor to the rank of Hachidan. Well, we're on now. On. Which, look, guys, that is a tremendous rank. Certainly well-deserved in my estimation. I don't know what the criteria is. When people decide who should be promoted to ranks of that magnitude. But given the experiences of these two gentlemen and all of the contributions they have made in judo, certainly longer than I've been alive, all of the books that they have written, all of the people that they have coached, all of the accomplishments they have had together, I mean... Look, I don't know what it takes to be that rank. I certainly will never, ever, ever get there, nor nor do I really want to. These two gentlemen have given their entire lives to judo, and they have impacted thousands upon thousands of people in a very positive way. Uh, Steve Scott is certainly one of the most enthusiastic judo men that I've ever come across in my life, and I'm very, very honored to have met both of them but to be a part of this recognition and this promotion I I just thought it was I'm really really happy and pleased to be a part of that and I know what their experiences you know I, I I with all the years of of judo they have under their belt, the belt's not going to get any darker. It's it's not about belts. It, it's it's more about recognition for the for the lifetime. It, it's almost like a lifetime achievement award of sorts, almost. It, it, that's a crude way of putting it, but I, I think you guys understand what I'm trying to get at. Very few people in judo have done what they have done, certainly in the United States and. It, it, it's a great honor for them, and I'm glad to have been um, a witness to that. It's time for my favorite segment of the Judo Chop Suey podcast. What time is it? Listener reaction, and I gotta say, the reaction for for this episode was was pretty uh pretty much in rare form. <laughs> Just say that. All right, let's let's see the first email here. All right, dear Judo Dave, love the podcast. Just wanted to know what your opinion is on this subject. Who's hotter, women in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or women in Judo? Thanks for all your hard work. <laughs> um, yeah, I think the obvious answer is yes. Moving along. I got an email from one of my female listeners. Uh, but she had a few choice words for me, so I won't read all of this. But I'll get to the general gist of it. She seemed to be upset about... The marital advice that I gave on the last uh, episode of my podcast. Now, I don't know what you're talking about, uh, anonymous emailer, but I didn't give any marital advice. I gave training advice. I I don't know what you thought what the exception was with uh, the advice that I gave, but I thought it was pretty sound. And I'm sorry you feel that way. I mean, I don't know. I thought it was a pretty straightforward question on training. So, look, I'm sorry you felt very badly about that or, or that I upset you in some way. But, look, I it's uh, the Judo Chopsui podcast. I'm going to give advice on judo. I, I'm not sure what else you wanted. All right, let's see. One last email here. All right, so, so this is interesting. I, I'm not actually going to read the email because there's not much to read, but... I was given a link to a discussion related to something a lady by the name of Carrie Chandler wrote in response to a post put out by Kayla Harrison on behalf of uh, Jim Pedro Sr. Now, I'm going to have to backtrack a little bit on this because I I thought this was really interesting. This this was a, a very good segue for me to talk about what it is that I wanted to cover related to USA Judo that I teased earlier in this episode. And as I said earlier in this episode, I'm going to treat this topic with as much care and respect as I can. But since this was openly debated in a public space, in a public forum, not just somebody's feed, you know, I've said this before, I follow Kayla Harrison, I follow Travis Stevens, and I uh, for and I follow many other athletes within Judo. And whenever they post something, I make sure my notifications are turned on. Because what usually happens is that they post something and it's almost like they have buyer's remorse and then they end up deleting the post. Well, I ended up getting one of those notifications a couple of weeks ago. And as soon as I saw the post that was made, I immediately copied it and pasted it up to Reddit because... Quite frankly, when it comes to USA Judo, I'm really tired of the innuendo that I hear in comments, in other postings, in videos, and it seems like people want to put other people on blast, but not be specific about what it is they're complaining about, and I'll give you a perfect example. Last year at Night of Champions fundraising dinner, Kayla Harrison had broken up with USA Judo and I know I talked about that uh, when that happened and and as I've talked about before it's one of the episodes that I regret the most because I think well I, I don't have to go there I I regret doing that episode so when approaching this I'm going to take a much softer tone I'll just put it that way but what I'm trying to get at is that when Kayla Harrison had made that speech at that night of Champions dinner, There was a lot of innuendo in that speech. She was never really specific about maybe how USA Judo failed her or whatever her issues were with USA Judo. I'm not sure, or at the time I was not sure what the problem was. But it seemed that this issue, this ongoing issue, reared its ugly head again. And instead of it being Kayla Harrison, it it was uh, Jimmy Pedro's father— Commonly, commonly known as Big Jim Pedro, uh, made a post via Kayla Harrison's uh, Facebook page. And the letter goes as follows. Dear USA Judo members, First of all, I want to say this has nothing to do with the athletes. The athletes' job is to fight and try to win as hard as they can. This has nothing to do with losing or the athletes. At the past Grand Prix in Cancun, The U.S. team had 34 losses and 7 wins total. So that means that all 34 losses allowed athletes from other countries to get points toward the Olympics and getting ahead of us on the world ranking list. I'm going to guess that's what WRL means. This is a big factor and shows me that we should not be allowing certain athletes to go to these events until they are at a certain level. The thing that really upsets me, however is that we have gone so backwards with the people who are running USA Judo that they put out fake news all the time. When you have athletes that go 0-4, which translates to no wins, and because no match was won, you get zero points, and are congratulating these athletes for taking seventh without winning a match, then something is majorly flawed in the system. That is the point we are at in USA Judo? That's what we're proud of? Whoever put this out should be fired, and anybody that knew that it was going out and allowed this to be printed should be fired. I will guarantee most USA Judo members did not watch the tournament, and I guarantee that the board members did not watch the event. If they did, they wouldn't be congratulating a zero-win result. From now on, when USA Judo puts out fake news, I am going to use this platform to tell you the truth. I'm sure Kayla appreciates that. I never have in the past because as long as the athletes were taken care of, I kept my mouth shut. However, I am tired of losing and I am tired of these athletes suffering because no system is in place for them to be successful. It's about time that USA Judo members put people in charge who know what they're doing and care about the athletes winning or at least giving them the best chances of winning. Yours in Judo, Big Jim. Alright, well look here. If there is one thing that I agree with in this entire post, and I'm not necessarily saying that I agree with Big Jim just because he's Big Jim and and the whole Pedro family and everything, that's not my deal here. But if there's one thing that I agree with is that I don't think USA Judo should be sending most of these athletes to these events. You know, if you go back to... My episode last year, right after the World Judo Championships, I I had a segment right at the very end. You know, basically asking where should USA Judo go from here because most of the athletes at the World Championships have no business being there. And and you know the thing is, I am saying that as a spectator. I'm not saying that to be critical. I'm not saying that because, you know, I think that that there are better athletes in the United States that should go. I am saying that in terms of me being a spectator of the International Judo Federation, the Grand Prix and Grand Slam contests as a spectator of the World Judo Championships. I know what top-level judo looks like in the same way that I know what top-level basketball looks like. And, and I'm telling you, look, there is a huge divide between the best judo players in the world And what Team USA is sending to these events. Now, look, I know based on, well, I know now based on a lot of the comments that I'm seeing underneath this post on Facebook, which I encourage all of you to read since it's all for public consumptions, that many of these athletes are self funded. But the thing is, the IJF World Tour is, in essence, professional judo. It's a, it's not quite a professional sports league, but it's sort of a professional sports league. There's money to be made. There's money to be earned. And as things stand right now, the the deck is stacked against Team USA. There's there's a there's not the infrastructure in place to support these athletes, and I don't really know if there really has been. Now, according to some of the other posts in that thread, there there, there appears to be some athletes that have had some benefits to being a part of Team USA ver, uh, over others, but I, I just don't, I, and I'm going to get to some of these comments later, but as a general rule, I, I don't think Team USA has any business sending 18 athletes to the World Championships. Why? I, they, there's nothing to be gained there. There was, there was a host of other countries that sent 18 athletes, and they typically are on the medal stands. We're talking about Japan, France, Brazil, Russia, China, South Korea. Uh, I know there's a couple others that sent 18 18, uh, total athletes and the United States. And out of all the countries that sent 18, every single one of them either got a medal, a fifth-place finish, or a seventh-place finish except for Team USA. And, you know, if these athletes are self-funded... And I have no reason to believe that they aren't. I don't understand. All right. Let me take some pause here. All right. So let me go this direction. I don't know what it's like to live in another country other than the United States. And in the United States, I firmly believe in the principle that if you work hard, you you do your best and and you have a dream. That nobody should be able to stand in the way of your dreams and you should be able to pursue your dreams and your goals by every legal means necessary. So, you know, if you want to garner sponsorships, if you want to work 80 to 100 hours a week at 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 a job because you want to pursue your dream in this country, nobody's going to stop you from doing that. And I firmly believe in that principle that if you want to work hard for something, th- that you should be able to go out and get whatever it is that you want. And the thing is, though, and I hate to say it on the flip side of all of that, it, you know, and, and this is the context of me being a middle-aged man. I'm I'm going to be approaching 44 pretty soon. And I've had my share of successes and I've certainly had my share of failure so and at my age, I kind of have the benefit of hindsight. And I'm I'm left wondering if for most of these athletes, if there's anybody in their lives willing to sit them down and tell them the tough news and say, hey, look, kid, you just might not be cut out for this thing, you know? And perhaps those conversations have happened. I, I, I don't know. But I do know that if everyone on Team USA were to walk away from the IGF World Tour and never compete in another IGF event again, that each and every one of them should be able to hold their head high and realize that they have been able to accomplish and find success doing something that most people in the world will never experience. I mean, I'll never know what it's like to stand out and fight in front of a crowd of 15,000 or or go to the Paris Grand Slam and, and perform in front of that crowd that, uh, enthusiastic crowd. I have no idea what that's like, and I'll never know that. And I'll never know what it's like to be on the same mat as the best competitive judoka on the world are. I'll, I'll never know what that's like. And these are all valuable experiences that you can pass on to, to future generations of judoka and, and of, of competitors and such that maybe you go into an avenue of coaching or or, or something. But you know, going back to what I was saying before, I, I I really don't understand why Team USA sends eighteen competitors. When there are a lot of other countries that does find success on the on the IGF World Tour, that they only send four or five competitors to, to like a world championships. I and I, I find it hard to believe that they only have four or five competitors on their national team, but they send who they think they can who can perform the best, who they feel that they can perform the best. And I don't understand why USA Judah does not do that. I, I think, I don't think this should come down to who can fund themselves and who can buy a plane ticket and, and go over there and, and, and get points. I guess I, I again, this, that may not be the most informed opinion, but perhaps the standards on who can represent team USA needs to be raised higher. Now I would like to read a response by a Carrie Chandler, who is the uh, manager for Nick Del Popolo, who is on Team USA, and this is probably one of about eighty different responses to Big Jim's original post. and And this this post of hers, and I'm I'm going to read it because you know what she put it out in public; it's for public consumption. So I don't have any problem um, reading this on my podcast. This is definitely one of the most direct criticisms and responses to anything about USA Judo's past related to the Pedro family and so on and so forth. So I'm going to go ahead and read this right now. FYI, these constant posts by the Pedro group don't ever tell the other side of the story. The Pedros were in charge for almost a decade, and during that time, Jose Rodriguez, the CEO of USA Judo, was proven to be breaking laws, stealing money, lying to sponsors, and pilfering USA Judo's nest egg. During this 10 years, the Pedros and their selected staff did nothing to stop what was happening, and if they continue to work with Jose, who is now working with the PJC PJC and the IJF. Travis, Kayla, and Marty had the privilege to benefit in excess of millions of dollars during those years, including direct pay of 55 dollars to $80,000 per year, along with all travel and training expenses paid. Did they deserve the money they received? Yes. Did the other athletes deserve little to nothing? No. Pedro's group also implemented a program for paying coaches and managers to attend events. The managers and coaches that were named to these paid positions were all named by and a part of the Pedro group. Pedro Jr. requested a six-figure salary to continue coaching after the Rio Olympics, which would have equaled one-sixth of the entire USOC budget. Travis was offered a coaching job by USA Judo and turned it down. The Pedros and selected staff resigned from USA Judo when their demands were not met. At the USA Judo Night of Champions celebration, Travis and Kayla followed suit. And after accepting checks in the tens of thousands with money donated by many in attendance at the dinner, they, quote unquote, broke up with USA Judo. Now, if you guys remember, I actually talked about that over a year ago. During their 10-year reign, no development or funding plans were put in place to support up-and-coming junior athletes. It's illogical to expect these athletes to be successful on the international stage this quickly. We should consider ourselves fortunate these athletes have the desire and love to tough it out without the financial assistance and support they should have received by those bashing them now. We have the most honest and forthcoming leadership from USA Judo. CEO Keith Bryant and the new board brought USA Judo into the black after nearly a decade in the red within its first few months of office, in office. The current leadership, athletes, and sponsors are being publicly called out for not performing better. Sponsors are being attacked and insulted for asking factual factual questions to the very people who are responsible for the current situation. Yikes, talk about uh, airing out your dirty laundry. That's like putting out the... uh, your sheets that your kid wet the bed on, right outside in the backyard, on some of those uh, on a laundry line or something. Goodness gracious! But you know what? There's a lot here said that I, I I I do agree with. Well, let's start with the fact that I do think the people that USA Judo have in place care about the athletes. I do believe that, and I am well aware of the former CEO of USA Judo. Pretty much breaking laws and stealing money and stuff like that—that that did happen. And how he got promoted and is on the Pan American Judo Confederation is is stunning to me. I, I don't I don't understand how that happened. And you know what? At, at the end of Big Jim's statement, he stated, "You know, it's about something along the lines of it's about time that USA Judo uh put people in charge that know what they're doing and 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 care about the athletes." Well, I'm kind of left wondering. Who did he have in mind? Is it is it him? Is it his son? Is it Travis? Is it Kayla? Like, Who are the people that know what they're doing? And what would be the end result of USA Judo and its current infrastructure if that happened? Does that mean, I don't know, every athlete that's on Team USA has to go to Pedro's Judo Center in Wakefield, Mass? I don't know if that's what it means. Again, I want to be clear that I'm not taking sides— I think both sides are making some interesting points. <laughs> interesting to say the least. But I am left wondering what is the long-term plan of USA Judo? How are our cadets doing? I know how the juniors did at the Junior World Championships, and it's not very good. And again, it's it's not a criticism. I'm, I'm not being critical of the athletes. It's just maybe they're just not good enough, and that's okay. That's... My point: It's okay to have failures in life and not be good enough, and redirect your energies to something that you'll find a lot more success with. That's really all I'm saying, you know. And maybe if the playing field was level in the sense that all the athletes were receiving the same amount of money, that we would all see more success from Team USA, and maybe we would have never heard of Kayla Harrison if she was receiving the same kind of funding that some of these other athletes are, which is no funding. You know, and and while I believe that USA Judo have people in place that care about the athletes, I still don't know what the long-term plan is. And for me, until I start seeing a long-term plan put on paper, uh, demonstrated, whatever the case may be, what is the five and what's the 10-year plan? And how are you going to work with other judo organizations to grow the grassroots programs in the United States. Until I see something like that, I, I am not going to continue to support USA judo because I feel like my money can be better spent elsewhere. And I feel that the organization that I'm a part of now, AAU judo is a lot more engaged with its membership. You know, and the other thing, there is no drama, uh, there are no power struggles or or anything like that uh in AAU judo. I know judo in the United States has a history of drama and both sides go back and forth and 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 what we're seeing here between you know USA judo and the Pedros, is, is, it is a family feud. We're supposed to be one judo family, and there's just a lot of infighting and bickering, a lot of old wounds that just haven't healed, and I can understand why they haven't. It. It, this whole thing is just really unfortunate, and at the end of it, no one comes out looking good, and, and probably the athletes suffer the most. So I want to move on to discussing... The results and some of the news items coming out of Abu Dhabi from the Abu Dhabi Grand Slam that took place over the weekend of October 27th through 29th. That was just a little bit over a week ago. Now, this was an event that I talked about last year and one of the big news items uh, coming out of that event, and it was not good news to say the least, was Israel as a country was not allowed to wear their national flag or have their national anthem uh, played if they ended up on the gold medal stand. And if I recall correctly, Tal Flicker, one of the uh, premier under-66-kilo uh, fighters in the world, uh, ended up winning gold in that event, and he had to stand there uh, while, the, I believe, the IJF anthem was being played, and he was not allowed to have the Israeli flag embroidered on his uniform. And for those of you who were listening last year, I, I think you know where I stand on this issue. I, I thought it was wrong for the Abu Dhabi Judo Federation to do this because I believe that with Judo there should be no borders and, and this kind of political nonsense should not be a part of the International Judo Federation. And I would like to give credit to to Mr. Marius Weiser, for being a diplomat and and being a voice of reason within this issue, he worked very hard the entire, uh, really all everybody in the IJF, but it was certainly spearheaded by Mister um, To to have this not happen this year in Abu Dhabi, and he took a hardline stance against the Abu Dhabi Judo Federation, and they complied. So I was very interested to see how this event would happen if an an Israeli ended up on the medal stand. And sure enough, that did happen. In the under-81-kilo division, Sagi Muki of Israel won the gold medal, defeating Matthias Kasse of Belgium. Now, the big surprise for me in this division, other than seeing the Abu Dhabi Judo Federation stick to their word and allow the national anthem of Israel to be played, is that Saeed Molai, who won the world championships, was not on the medal stand, and it turns out he he twisted an ankle in, uh, in in a in one of the earlier rounds, which is very unfortunate because he he's one of the athletes I enjoy watching in that particular division. He's the current world champion, and um, obviously being a world champion is one of the best to watch. But he really he really has some fantastic judo. He's he's uh. That, that under 81-kilo division is always so hard to predict, um, but Molai was not there, and so that paved the way for uh, Frank DeWitt of the Netherlands to get an, uh, to earn a bronze medal, along with Didar Kamza of Kazakhstan. Now, going back to Molai, I did see the contest between him and Jack Hatton of the United States, and as you can imagine, given what I talked about earlier in this episode, uh that, that that match did not end up going very well uh for, for, for Jack because Molai just showed why he is the world champion. He was he was brilliant in that contest. Now another big news item coming out of the Abu Dhabi Grand Slam is the return of Majlinda Kelmendi who is somebody that I think is one of the best in the world in the under fifty two kilo division. Now she has been sidelined for a very long time, really since last year due to an injury, which unfortunately for her uh, knocked her all the way down to being the 29th ranked uh, Judoka in her division. Now, unfortunately for her in this event, she had to withdraw. She made it all the way to the under 52 kilo final, which given the, the layoff is a remarkable achievement, but she had to Withdraw from this competition because, or or from this, from the final because of a nosebleed that she had, that she sustained an injury earlier uh, in the day. Now, when I mean nosebleed, I'm not talking about a, uh, you know, a couple of drops of blood coming out of the sinus uh, sinuses or anything. It it looked like when in the final she had a a heavily bandaged face, so I'm going to guess that she she sustained a uh, maybe a broken nose or something along those lines. Um, that that opened up the maybe the bridge of her nose or something like that because I mean her face was heavily bandaged and when I when I set the the video to 1080p and I maximized it full screen it was obvious that that there was a lot of blood on her bandage and everything so it was kind of gruesome I mean my stomach doesn't turn very easily but but certainly a gruesome scene and and the the referee on the mat uh, did the right thing to to put a stop to that that contest. So with that, Odetta Dufrida uh, of Italy ends up winning the gold medal for the under fifty-two kilo division. So that means uh Majlinda Kelmendi earns a silver. Gilly Cohen of Israel wins one of the bronze medals and Chelsea Giles or Giles of Great Britain wins the other bronze medal. Now I'd like to quickly run through the other divisions and and maybe point out some things that stuck out to me, uh, who the winners are. So starting with the under 60 kilo division, uh, Armin Papineshvili of Georgia uh, defeats Francisco Garagos of Spain. One of the bronze medal winners in the under 60 kilo division is Sharafudin Luthilayev of Uzbekistan. And the other bronze medal goes to Guzman curbs uh, of Kazakhstan. Moving on to the under-66 kilo division, Vazha uh, Markvelashvili defeated Yerlin Kazanov of Kazakhstan. And uh, as you guys know, Markvelashvili is from Georgia. Georgia had a pretty good day today. Or I should say at this Grand Slam. Brauk Shmalioff of Israel takes one bronze and... Dismitri sherzan of Belarus takes the other bronze. The under seventy three kilo division was won by another Georgian. That would be that division was taken by Lasha uh Shadatsvili of of like I said of Georgia, defeating Ekel Jakova of Kosovo, the one bronze medal winner. Musa Mogushkov of Russia takes one bronze and Tommy Macias of Sweden takes the other bronze. So I already covered uh, I already covered the under 81 kilo division, so I'm going to move right along to the under 90 kilo division, which was won by Mikhail Ilgonikov of Russia, uh, defeating Christian Toth of Hungary. Mamadali Mediev of Azerbaijan takes one bronze medal, and let's see, Alexander Kuklos of Serbia takes the other bronze medal. In the other, in the under hundred kilo division, Peter Polchik of Israel uh, def, uh, defeated Elmar Gassimov for the gold medal. Now that's that's uh, Israel also had a pretty good day along with Georgia in the men's division. Uh, the one bronze medal was taken by Jeff Jengis, uh, or of Latveria. and the other bronze medal was was won by Carl Richard Frey. Of Germany and in the over 100 kilo division, Inal Tasoev of Russia defeated Lukas Kpalik of the Czech Republic. One of the bronze medal winners was Luri Krakovetsky of Kyrgyzstan and the other bronze medal winner was Henk Grohl of the Netherlands. Moving on to the women's division in the under 48 kilo division, you have Ertstansteg Munkbat of Mongolia defeating Dystria Krasniki. Of Kosovo, um, that does that does not surprise me in in the least because my, the Mongolian women are fantastic. Not not taking anything away from from Destrja Krasniki of Kosovo, but uh, if I was betting on this contest, I would have I would have bet on uh, Munkbata to take gold here. One of the bronze medals was won won by Yaron Lee of China, and the other bronze medal was won won by Paula Pareto of Argentina. I already covered the under 52 kilo division, so I'm going to move on to the under 57 kilo division, which was won by Anastasia Konika Konkina of oh, I'm sorry, Konkina of Russia, defeating Nora uh, Jakova of Kosovo. One of the bronze medals was won by Timna Nelson Levy of Israel. Uh, again, there's Israel again making it onto the medal stand, and the other bronze medal was won by Priscilla Neto of France. Now, France did not field a very large team for this event. I usually, anytime, anytime I see uh, France, I'm always looking for Clarissa Abignenu, but she was not in this contest, uh, which leads me to the under-63 kilo division, which is where she normally fights. I'm talking about Abignenu. Uh, that division was won by Jules Franzen of the Netherlands, defeating Andrea... Leski of Slovenia, Katarina Hecker of Australia ends up taking one of the bronze medals, and Tina Turstenjak of Slovenia takes the other bronze medal. Now, that's a little bit of a surprise to me because if I was a betting man, which I happen to be a betting man, I would have guessed Tina Turstenjak to win this division with the competitors that were here on this day. But uh, nope, she ends up getting the bronze medal. In the under seventy kilo division, you have Marjo Pinot of France defeating Miriam Buchrate of Germany. One of the bronze medal winners was Michaela Polaris of Austria, and in the other, bro- uh, the other bronze medal winner was Giovanna Sochimaro uh, of Germany. Now moving on to the under seventy-eight kilo division, where uh, Yusef Steenhuis of the Netherlands defeated Natalie Powell of Great Britain. Now, uh, I just wanted to say, uh, Great Britain had a nice showing in this event, especially the 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 women. They've they've got a really strong team, and I I think they're gonna they're gonna be in store for good things in the Olympics in Tokyo, um, in a, in a couple of years. So, really, uh, about a year and a half or so, I I expect at least one medal winner, uh, somebody from Great Britain to appear on the medal stand. Um, in Tokyo, no, no question about it. If I if I am gonna put money down, I would definitely put money down on on uh, one of the women in um, Team Great Britain to be on the medal stand. I am calling it right now. Um, but Natalie Powell ends up getting the silver medal. Uh, one of the bronze medals goes to Beeta Pakut of Poland, and the other bronze medal goes to Zhenzhao Ma of China. And moving on to the over seventy-eight kilo division, which was won by Marina uh, Slutskaya of Belarus. She's somebody that I've also kind of been keeping my eye on. I know she's. I mean, obviously Sarah Asahina is is the 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 queen of this division, but Slutskaya is a strong competitor in this division. She defeated Anne Fatou Mata Ambayo of France uh one of the bronze medals ends up going to Carolyn Weiss of Germany and the other bronze medal goes to Irnia uh, Kinzerska of Azerbaijan. So that wraps up the results of the Abu Dhabi Grand Slam. The next major event is going to be taking place in Tashkent, Uzbekistan, which is the Tashkent Grand Prix. I will not be able to watch that because I will be on vacation. And just a short five days after that, that so the Tashkent Grand Prix is happening on November 9th through 11th, and the following Grand Prix happening on uh, November 16th through 18th is going to be happening the Hague Grand Prix, which is in the Hague, Netherlands. I will still be on vacation, so I won't be able to watch that. But I am definitely looking forward to watching the Osaka Grand Slam, which is obviously in Osaka, Japan. That's going to be taking place on November 23rd through 25th. So you can expect my next episode of this hideous podcast to appear sometime after uh, the Osaka Grand Slam and certainly after Thanksgiving. But you never know. Maybe I'll be able to squeeze one in before then, but I, I highly doubt it given my schedule over the next uh, couple of weeks or so. And now wrapping up this episode, I wanted to talk again about CBD and I swear to you guys, I'm not trying to sell CBD. I'm, I mean, actually, I do have a, a referral code if anybody was interested. But what I wanted to talk about was kind of a continu- continuation of the discussion that I had in my last episode where I had talked about that I've received some benefits taking CBD um, when it came to maybe stress, if you want to call it anxiety. Um, helping me relax more during training and you know, not, you know, kind of being chill on the mats or whatever. But I decided to change the dosing of the way that I'm taking CBD because I was a little bit disappointed with how it was it was helping me for pain, which was the reason why I had purchased the CBD in the first place. And I, as I stated in my last episode, CBD is not cheap especially the the amount of milligrams that I purchased, which was 2,500 milligrams in a 30-milliliter bottle. Um, but I've changed the dosing in such a way where I am taking CBD throughout the day instead of just one dose, one big dose in the morning. And I got to say that I have felt a tremendous difference, which is why when I was talking earlier on, you know, when I was at JudoCon for day one, how my body was was feeling very poorly um by not taking cbd and and I like I said it's a supplement and it's not like I can I can't live without it or anything like that but and I was telling this to somebody at at judocon for, for me 43 years old has not been a good year for me uh, physically I've just I've talked about the bursitis in my knees. I've talked about my back spasms that I still, I still have a minor spasm in my lower back. I mean, I've had these things from going on months now, and I'm, I'm trying to take better care of my body. I'm, I'm taking a more active um, approach to stretching, especially over the past. uh, Week or so, I've just I've kind of thrown in a towel, and I've just kind of said to myself, "Look, I got to do something different here because I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be able to last if 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 uh, my body keeps feeling this way." But along with the stretching and 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 ice therapy and heat therapy, I'm I've been taking CBD, and now that I've been taking it throughout the day in small doses, I am seeing a much improved benefit for pain management and look i'm not in such horrible pain that you know it's debilitating but it, it i was in enough pain on friday that i could not stick around for the leg lock um seminar which which was really unfortunate but I, I just had to listen to my body and and just say no you know in years prior i would have pushed through it but i wanted to make sure that i was going to be physically capable to do any judo on the following day. And I was after I took care of myself, did a lot of stretching and took a nice hot bath. But but yeah, these are the things that I'm going to have to do. And on Saturday, I did take a dosage of CBD throughout the day. I, I brought it with me in my in my little, uh you know, judo bag. And it did help me get through the day uh for sure with some of the pain management, especially with my knees and, um you know, my lower back and such. So so yeah, that is my update on using CBD. And if you guys have any questions about that or anything else, you can reach me at judochopsui show at gmail.com. You can find me on Instagram at judoka. My Instagram is awesome. And you can also find me on Facebook uh, by searching on the Judo Chopsui podcast. My Facebook is not nearly as awesome. And if you're brave enough, you can do a search for me on uh, for, for Dave Roman. And if you see my... Profile. Feel free to add me as a friend. I always love uh, adding friends as uh, or listeners as friends, and vice versa, whatever the case may be. It was really nice to meet a lot of people at JudoCon that are listeners. I I was surprised to meet so many, uh, but but I was very humbled that uh, you know that people are like, oh hey yeah, you're the guy in the podcast, right? And I was like, yeah yeah, I am. So I really appreciate uh, meeting everybody there at JudoCon. And I hope to see you all again sometime soon. Hopefully uh, sometime in the early part of next year. I think that would be fantastic. Oh, and one more thing. Um, I am recording this section on November 6th. And I am anticipating a a November 6th release of this episode. I wanted to take a moment to bring up that today is the two-year anniversary of my coach's passing David Middendorf was a, he, like I said, he was my coach, he was my friend, and he was somebody that I very much loved like a brother, and um, I, I I, really miss him. He was a, a really good friend of mine, and uh, the most influential person in my judo uh, development. Certainly, I spent the most time with him, and um, the most fun times I've ever had in judo were always with him, so Dave, you're missed. I love you. And um, I know I'm not the only one remembering him today. So, with that, I hope you all have a great day. I hope you all have a great rest of the week. Train hard. Stay safe out there. And until next time, I'm out.